Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. afternoon good evening good morning it's across the room of us episode 40 the european super league episode is what we've titled it because how could we talk about anything else well actually we're going to talk about other things first and foremost because there were actually some things that happened on the pitch this weekend but steve how are you feeling after this this weekend's results I mean, you know, yes, they Torino in the end deserved the victory, but you know, I just mentioned to you, Sean, before we start recording, if if Pedro wasn't such garbage in the first half, I mean, he was absolutely awful. Uh, Roma could have been up a couple goals, and and it would have been a moot point, I, I think, in the second half. I think if Roma goes up two or three goals, like they were more than capable of, I think it's a different result. I'm not surprised by the result, just because we were coming off the big win on not win, but the you know advancement on Thursday, uh, all that important draw. And, you know, a lot of players rested again, but um, yeah, I mean, still disappointing, but it didn't hurt me like it would have if, uh, you know, this was like a standalone fixture, not coming off a Thursday win in the Europa League against Ajax in terms of advancing to the next round, I guess. Yeah, I think I think there's some some feelings of anger and betrayal from the Super League thing that's being like cast onto Pedro here. Very unlikely, <laughs> Steve, to call someone's performance garbage. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty bad. I had my buddy who's a Lazio fan messaging me. He's like, how bad is Pedro? Like, you know, Roma should be up a couple of goals. And this is a Lazio fan telling me this. Yeah. I was like, yeah, he's well, been pretty awful. Yeah, we're talking about um, the Roma men's team, the Cena team, the Roma team, losing to Torino this weekend, 3-1, in case you weren't aware or you hadn't seen the match. Hadn't seen a scoreline yet. Roma went ahead 1-0 on the day. Uh, it was actually Pedro who, who flicked it on to Meral and mm-hmm. got himself an assist. And Meral put us up, up on the scoreline uh, within three minutes of the game. But uh, Torino showed more hunger over 90 minutes and had the dominion of midfield with their, with their back five doing a better job of pushing up than Roma's back five. Uh, and Andre Bellotti up front, Torino's captain and talisman, Looked hungrier than ever, really chasing down everything, including chasing down Fazio and robbing him for uh, the, the third goal that Torino scored right at the death and stoppage time. So that all but puts paid to Paolo Fonseca's uh, Roma and their hopes in the league of qualifying. But hey, there's a lot that's happened since then that could really have serious implications on Roma's qualification to Europe next season. Um, also, we should talk about Roma drawing against Ajax in in, in uh, midweek before turning out, Steve. Uh, I actually nailed that one. I, I called it 1-1. So are you going to congratulate me? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good call. Uh, but just one quick thing on the Torino match. I couldn't believe that, you know, it was like an onslaught. I mean, Dante made a couple, you know, iffy saves, especially one that was put in on the rebound by Zaza. But man, he was under fire. I think I think Torino finished the match like 26 shots or something, like something 27. absurd. 27. Yeah. And uh, quite at, a few were on target. Even at halftime, they were up 14 shots to five. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Crazy yeah. from a, a team that's been fighting relegation. I mean, they're better than I think their record indicates based on the talent on that team. I think they have some nice pieces. But man, I mean, Roma looked <laughs> look pretty poor. But I do congratulate you on the call in the Ajax 1-1. I had 2-2. <laughs> we both had the scoring draw, but you had the exact score. So, you know, you win there but uh the scoring draw was like we had mentioned that was all we needed and that's that's what they got and it was plenty uh, very, very true very true uh, elsewhere in roma roma primavera are in motivational crisis coming off uh yet another one wall draw one one draw sorry where they had to come from behind equalize uh looking very much like uh, the old days of rudy garcia down there with the Alberto de Rosa's team right now just constant one all draws and they've firmly lost the lead at the top of the table but again, we remind you that it's a playoff format in uh, City, City, City of Primavera 1. So they're, they're firmly in place for a playoff position. But really, all these draws can't be doing the team any, more, any, uh, any good on the morale, street, uh, morale front. Sorry. Uh, as for Roma women, what about them? They are the lone success story, uh, unqualified success in, in this uh, Roma verse right now. Roma women bagged an important win away to Fiorentina 2-1. One where I believe they came from behind. Yeah, they did. Uh, the Cetrini gave the ball away in, in her own half, and Fiorentina went up 1-0. But Roma came from behind with a Giuliano penalty, and then Cetrini herself scored the winner to make amends. So that leaves Roma a firm favorites to finish in fourth place because they've widened the gap to Fiorentina in fifth, and there are only something like, I think there's like 15 points remaining. Um, so yeah, they're, they're now free to concentrate on the biggest match of the season. Probably, the, probably the biggest match left in this in the season on any calendar, unless something strange happens in the Europa League for the men, which could very well happen. But the uh, biggest match of the season coming up Sunday, twenty fifth of April. This coming Sunday, it's Coppa Italia semi final: Juventus women versus Roma women, where Roma lead two one on aggregate. They take a two one lead away to the Juventus Stadium. And let's remind you, well, actually, sorry, I'm, I'm not sure if they're playing in the Juventus Stadium. I think they might be playing in the alternate stadium. But um, to remind you that before Roma had won that first leg, this is a Juventus side that hadn't lost in two calendar years. So this is this is a really a huge fixture, and this has been earmarked on my calendar for a while, especially with Roma. You know, there's, there was no reason why this Roma team had to G themselves up to beat Fiorentina this weekend, but they're showing that they're, um, they're motivated. They want to win every game. They've got a selection of uh, four players up front with two substitutes that, you know, really the coach has struggled to rotate them and find the best combination of them all season long, but they look like they're finally clicking. So can they slay Juventus? It's Sunday, 25th of April, and I'm certainly going to be watching. It's, it's free to air. It's on the AS Roma website, free to watch, and I'll be there. Uh, Roma men, meanwhile... Question for you, though, a... Sean, before we go to the men. Go ahead. Is there a better way to get back at Juventus for the Super League stuff than having our women take it out on them? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Then again, I, I don't know if, if all the women might argue, well, they're, they're all in it together because what, what happens to them? What, what is their future with this Super yeah. League stuff? That's, that's, that's a question for another day. But uh, yeah, if, if you want to look at it in Roma Juventus terms, this is uh, definitely one to get over them this, this coming Sunday. Uh, the Roma men, meanwhile, will play before them. They will play Atlanta this Thursday, but I'm not sure if we have 
any kind of hopes uh, <laughs> going into that match. Do you, do you Steve? I mean, I, I think all hope in the league is officially lost after losing yesterday. You know, I think the percentage was always very low for us to make the top four. Not that it might matter anymore after the Super League news, but um, if Roma had won yesterday and Atalanta maybe had lost, I think we would have had a little hope. But Atalanta pulled out that win against Juve uh, yesterday morning, so they're in very good shape. Um, and I, after yesterday's performance, I don't know what to expect on Thursday. I expect Fonseca to throw out his best 11 that's available and then go a little bit weaker against Cagliari probably to rest for probably a match against United in a week and a half. But um, I don't know if even our best right now are up to Atalanta. I mean, Atalanta has, uh, behind Inter, the best, I think, points per match since, like, you know, January 2021 started. So yeah. Um, yeah. they're, they're going to be a tough nut to crack. I wouldn't be surprised if they finish second in the league by the time all, all is said and done um, mm-hmm. because they're, they're playing some great football. And I can't wait to... I mean, I, I hope now, especially with the Super League stuff, I mean, I, I would have been rooting for them anyway, probably in the Copa final, but I hope they just, I hope they slaughter you in the Copa final and really stick it to Agnelli. <laughs> well, I'm going to grill you on that later on. You're going you're gonna, <laughs> to you're gonna re- represent the Roma fans for me because I, I wonder uh, if we really are in Atlantis corner uh, when it's not convenient. It could be convenient to support them now, but have we always been happy for them in the past? We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it later on, but I know... You will be you'll be speaking with an Atlanta fan in an ATR episode coming up, won't you? That's what uh, it won't be an ATR episode. I'm actually um, being interviewed by an Atlanta pod tonight, so I'll I'll tweet okay. that out, um, and I'm sure Brent will retweet it from the the Kiesdi Totti Twitter as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's more content coming up for you this week. Uh, but let's move on to the unavoidable topic, the Titanic topic in football right now. Everyone's talking about it. We've had about four or five articles in a row about it. Uh, we can't get enough of it, apparently. It's the European Super League. And uh, is it a bad idea? We're going to discuss it tonight. Is it a bad idea? Or is it the root of all evil? You know, it's, it's, is it bad or even worse? But uh, um, our, what, what are our gut reactions? That I think generally, Steve, what I'm picking up, I've, I've been scanning the radar um, all day. I know you've been at work. Uh, but there's uh, generally there's, there's two giant sets of emotions that are contrasting here there's one uh where it's like there's a feeling of being betrayed and uh like the, the values of uh the, the the sport that we've grown up and and become accustomed to like that, that that those are being betrayed and there's a need to protect those that's a feeling that we have to protect that and then there's also very very slightly and probably i'm going to be playing the you know the, the masquerade villain here um by representing this this school of thought but very, very subtly, there's also some people are feeling relieved that the cat's out of the bag and that everything that's wrong with football right now is being made obvious by the fact that these these 12 clubs have the gall to actually come out and, and propose something like the European Super League. Um, is that is that a fair assessment of the feeling right now? What was there? Is there something stuff that I'm missing? Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of anger about it. I mean, from from everything for the you know, probably 90. 9% of what I've seen on Twitter reactions and, and just in general um, is, is a lot of anger over it. And I think I, I agree with a lot of these people that, you know, it, it is goaling, um, you know, that, that these 12 clubs, the, except for PSG and Bayern at this point are like the biggest clubs in the world, super rich clubs. Um, so a part of me was surprised actually PSG wasn't part of it to begin with and, and even Bayern in some ways, but maybe Bayern has some more, ideals still about them they seem to have kind of maybe <laughs> cling to the past a little bit if you know what i mean where psg is that new rich club but um i wouldn't be surprised to see them if this all follows through that they eventually get added in because i think they'll they'll feel like they've been left behind but 
um, you know, for the Real Madrid's of the world and the Barcelona's and the Juve's, it, it does take a lot of goal to, you know, a, in a lot of ways change the whole football landscape. And we'll get into more detail. Um, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't shocked that this announcement came out because it's mm. been talked about for a while. What, what was shocking to me, I guess, what was surprising to me was the fact that it happened now in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, you know, have a lot of people who are out of work, especially in the world of football, especially with lower division clubs and things like that. Um, stadiums are closed. So you don't have those, you know, day-to-day employees there and things like that. And these people are out of work, you know, living on government help right now for the most part. And you have these super rich owners and super rich clubs saying, you know what, we don't need any of these other teams. We can just go out on our own and, and, and just get richer and, Mm. you know, leave everybody else by the wayside. I, I think that was the more surprising part is that it's, you know, not a boom time economy right now. It's, you know, the global economy is struggling because of COVID and, yeah. and you're getting a billion, some $6 billion, whatever the loan is from JP Morgan to make this happen. You know, JP Morgan yeah. doesn't have better places to invest their money right now. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put a, a pin in that and come back to it because it's a very good point, but uh, I want to expand on that in just a little bit, a little minute, but I think it's going to be easier for us to sift through the, the, the instinctive reactions that we've all had this week by looking at um, the main players in terms of their actions and reactions and, and how they're being discussed. But the one person who's really got himself in the spotlight this week is Andre Agnelli, the Juventus owner and uh, probably the, the, the chairman of Fiat Group, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, so he his, his actions have been extraordinary. As, as, as I see the one part of this, this, this time around, this time on the, on the European Super League merry-go-round that surprised me, because like you said, it, it's not that shocking if, if you realize that the Super League conversation has been around since the 1980s, since before we were born. Um, and it's always been there in the background. But what really surprised me was this little twist that you have of Agnelli, you know, like sort of like swiping right on both uh, the new Champions League proposal and swiping right on the European Super League at the same time. And then, you know, ghosting the Champions League at the last minute, just pulling the, the rug on me from uh, Alexander Seferin's feet, the, the head of the UEFA, and just going with the European Super League. So really double dipping. Well, what could possibly be Andrea Agnelli's motivations for, for doing something so Machiavellian? Is it, I want to I propose to you, is, it, is he motivated by protectionism? Do you, do you believe this, um, this idea that big clubs are looking to insulate themselves from bad league performances? Like if they finish... Uh, they have a bad season outside the Champions League. They they want to be protected from that. Is there is there is there much recent evidence that they're struggling whenever a Leicester or an Atalanta or Napoli beats them that European places, Steve? I think that could be part of it. Um, you know, but like like I heard, um, you know, this guy Frank Cravello. If anybody listens to um some said yeah sit down podcast he tweeted out you know i can't and he's a milan fan and he goes i can't wait until juve gets their asses kicked pretty much all the time because they you know when they play these big clubs in the champions league you know they they, they don't do well a lot of the well. time yeah. um so i if they're protecting themselves from the adelantes of the world they're, they're in for maybe a world of hurt on the pitch in other areas <laughs> but i i think it in some ways it's protectionalism uh protectionism from losing money in some ways too because if you get knocked out of the Champions League early by a smaller club like Juve did to Porto this year in the round of 16 you're losing money you know so in that sense they're protecting themselves from financial loss because I think all of this comes down to money I I think it's you know pretty obvious that the Super League is more about money yeah sure the 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 big clubs can say well we want to see who the best of the big teams is on the pitch yeah okay that's all well and good but you know you do that in the Champions League already as it is you know now there's just more money involved and you, you take out these X factors of a Leicester City or an Atalanta or somebody like that making a run or even a, a, a Roma beating Barcelona a couple of years ago. 
you know, yeah. even, even Roma in that sense is a, is an underdog when it comes to the European stage, especially. Um, so I think they are protecting themselves from things like that. And you look at Juve's trajectory right now, Juve's in danger of falling out of the Champions League places. You know, mm-hmm. Milan's been out of the Champions League places for, for like a decade now. Inter that- up until a couple of years ago, wasn't there. So yeah, I think they're protecting themselves in some ways. Before then, though, you have Juve winning nine titles in a row. Yes, yes, for sure. So I think, you know, I, but I think in terms of like less for Juve, but especially a Milan who's been not yeah. so relevant for the past decade like they used to be. This is yeah. like, you know, I, I read somebody else tweet, I can't remember who it was that like they had trouble buying someone from like France for like 8 million euros this winter market and had to pass on a deal. But now they're going to have like 300 million euros available to them to, to go spend this summer, you know? Um, so this guaranteed money protects them, insulates them from a lot of the competition. Yeah, I mean, you got a good point that AC Milan is a a good, a very good example of earning a pardon for all your recent mistakes over the last decade or so. Um, And and even um, over in England for you, Arsenal, Arsenal's been pretty terrible recently, you know, so this makes them more relevant again compared to, you know, recent years. Fair enough. I'll give you a second motivation. And, and this ties into what you've been saying about um, losses like, and the pandemic. Yeah? Um, and yeah, well, what, why would he make himself out willing to be sticking his neck out as a bad guy? Is it, it alternatively because of frustration? And is he, is he, is he and his 12, sorry, his other 11 club owners, are they going vigilante? Are, are these um, football owners frustrated with... Uh, corruption at an international and national level in their, in their respective countries could it could this actually be portrayed sorry as the european justice league like uh, jonas just coined them in the uh, in our roundtable article because i'll put it to you like this steve there was a recent gazetta uh, feature about how football had been losing money over the last few years and actually the the losses from the pandemic only accounted for 19 percent of those total losses Right, and what was far more damaging to clubs was um, the the increase in uh, amortization payments from increased transfer fees, basically, and increase in player wages. That was all, all spiraling out of control. Now, who are really the most likely people to cry pandemic? Like the most likely clubs to cry pandemic and cry losses and and use that as an excuse to to, to bury their poor management of all their decisions in the last few years. Me personally, I think. You'd look at the, the typical usual suspect from mid-table downwards. You look at Cagliari's, you look at um, people in City D, City C, City C, City City B, um, who often just work on a short-term basis from like six months to six months and just like really live to survive and treat mm-hmm. their clubs as if, you know, they really don't treat their fans with much regard whatsoever. The truth of, well, for me anyway, the truth of football right now is that there are really only a handful of clubs that can actually offer that match their experience where they they actually look like they give a damn about fans attending the match um all year round and those are actually the, the richest clubs in the, in the land because they can afford to to care for that match day experience whereas the others they would just take the tv money and, and shut, up, shut up gates if they wanted to there, there was a um uh, a really in-depth post from livorno fans in 2014 that i found and i've made reference to this so many times uh where they said that only felt that the owners at Livorno um, would, if they could, they would shut the gates and stop fans coming to the, t- uh, to, to the match because then they wouldn't have to worry about match day expenses, which aren't cheap. 
You know, like mm -hmm. for Roma, match day expenses every match are over well over a million. But luckily, they get gate receipts of about three to four million, so they cover it. But for Livorno, it's a different story. So they, they had club owners that they felt like these are fans from the ultras from these clubs that said that they genuinely feel that those owners would uh, gladly shut the gates, not have to deal with match day expenses, and just accept TV money. There was a new TV deal offered to City D in 2014. It's been still been going on since then, where that, that's much easier for a club to manage that money. So um, could this not be? from a European Super League perspective, the big clubs get frustrated that they're running business well, they're running a match day experience well, and then everyone on it, underneath them is actually just burying their own poor decisions on, in, the, in, the, in the wake of this pandemic. I mean, I'm sure some of it could be that uh, because, you know, and, and this goes, you know, less so in American sports because of the way, you know, the sports are collectively bargained and things like that. Um, but there's always there's always like those weaker clubs that don't draw teams, even in American sports where other owners, you know, they revenue share and things like that. And I'm sure for a big club, especially because I think it's even more glaring in European football because of the promotion relegation system where these yo-yo type teams and these teams that only come up once in a while, uh, they'll never draw the same kind of revenues as these big clubs and the big clubs. I'm sure there's a trickle down where those clubs get some of the money of a piece of the pie from the bigger clubs. But if you look at the way the TV deals are even, allocated and i think you you know more than i do but don't the bigger clubs get a bigger piece of the television pie from the yes. domestic right so you know they're making plenty of money i think from like an agnelli standpoint i think where agnelli's frustration probably is is he in italy he can't make with juve what a real madrid is making or what mm -hmm. uh, a manchester united is making uh and united hasn't been as relevant in recent years but i'm sure they're still making more money than juve um, yeah. you know, without the winning that they, they haven't really done much of in recent years. So I think that from like an Agnelli perspective would be the frustration is the, the money's a little more limited. Maybe the marketing rights are mm -hmm. a little limited. Um, I don't know how like an Atletico compares, but you know, Real Madrid and Barcelona are the two biggest clubs in the world for the most part in terms of fan bases and selling merchandise abroad and things like that, where Juve is still trying to build that. So yeah. I think from an Agnelli standpoint, you're like, well, if I'm in a super league where I'm only playing the five biggest English clubs and I'm playing those two Spanish giants uh, and these Northern Italian rivals will have plenty of opportunity to build our brand and to take in yeah. so much more revenue. So I think that yeah, would be as, the frustration standpoint. And as, as an away side, you could always negotiate part of the gate from mm -hmm. those, those clubs in, in those, you know, unrestricted yeah. lands like England and Spain. Yeah. I, that's a, that's a good angle. I because you, you look about. at it even domestically when yeah. Juve, you know, when there were fans in the stands, if you had, say a team like, I don't know, I'm thinking of a team with a decent size stadium, like a Serie B side, like a body, right? Say body comes yeah. up every once in a while. Body's got a pretty big stadium. Yeah. They're not selling 30, it out for, 30, for yeah. Outside of like yeah. body, body Lecce, if, if the Derby happens, which rarely happens because they're not in the same division too often in Puglia. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when Milan or Inter or Juve comes, they're selling that stadium out. So, yeah. you know, um, it's that same kind of thing. They, they have that draw, but, you know, I guess, you know, maybe Agnelli doesn't like what he's getting out of that, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's pretty much where I was going with this. You, you, you worded it better than I did. It's like, are they just getting sick and tired of being the draw nationally and then mm. watching like other clubs screw up that opportunity when, you know, when you, they come away in the cup, they, yeah. and see that, that money misspent elsewhere. But um, yeah. Or, what about uh, alternative motivation? Is it just survival? Has, has he seen the death of football coming, Steve? Because he, um, I, I listened to Danny Murphy on BBC Sport yesterday, and uh, he was asked in a heated moment, like, he was asked, have these 
12 clubs given any thought? Have they asked around? Have they asked players? Have they asked fans how they feel? And Murphy said no. But in actual fact, I know that they have because uh, we've seen Agnelli's speech to the ECA, the European Clubs Association, where he's he said a lot of stuff and a lot of it's been sensationalized, but they cut cut out quotes where he said, um, you know, what, what right do Atlanta have to be in the Champions League after one good season, et cetera, et cetera. But he also said stuff like, most recently he said, uh, they surveyed, I don't know how they went about their survey, so that could be up for debate, but they surveyed young adults and adolescents around Italy and asked them, if uh, you know, how, how often do you spend watching football? And basically their findings on the bottom line were 40% of young adults and adolescents do not care to watch football anymore. It's not, it's not a sport that is growing in popularity among young people. It's actually becoming, at least in Italy, a sport more about sentiment for people our age, you know, who grew up in the glory years. So has Agnelli just seen that football just isn't working now and he's, he's pulling out before he gets dragged down with, with the people who just don't want to change? Yeah, I mean, I, I could see the same thing happening here in the United States with baseball, for example. Um, I grew up playing baseball. Baseball is still a very popular sport in the United States, but not to the extent it was with my you know parents or grandparents' generation when baseball was the main sport in the United States. So I could see the same kind of trend happening in, it, in Italy and in Europe, I'm sure, um, because of just the way society has changed where sport isn't the only uh, means of like, you know, escaping your reality on, on, on like the weekend or something, you know, just like baseball was in the early days here, you know, is it, it was a day out to the ballpark. We don't see it as popular uh, in Europe with people going to the Olympico, the Olympico, I'm sure 50 years ago would have been packed for many of these matches that mm. weren't drawing nowadays. Cause that was the main, you know, means of entertainment, um, you know, besides like the theater and the cinema and things like that. Uh, yeah. Now there's so much entertainment at home and other places to go and just spend a day. Um, but in terms of survival, you know, plenty of teams are surviving right now. Are they thriving? Maybe they're not thriving financially. So I think when you're talking about survival, it's maybe less uh, survival overall and more surviving in a way that these clubs want to continue to, um, you know, be run the same way they're being run right now and operate the same way they're operating, which is above their means in many ways. Like, you see the money Barcelona spends. They're not really a financially stable club from all reports you read about Barcelona. Uh, I'm sure Juventus, especially with the pandemic, the money they spend on these transfers. I think the biggest issue this comes down to with, with spending in, in football is the, the transfer values that we see getting thrown mm-hmm. around. So clubs are making these bogus transfers. Oh, we're selling you, uh, I don't know, Nicolo Ravella for like 20 million euros when the kids yeah. played like a, f- a few games for Genoa. Uh, because everything's inflated and now teams have to make fake plus Valenza like we've talked about on here before, yeah. in Roma included. Um, but wouldn't, wouldn't that go away if you're in a closed, closed, closed league? Well, yeah, because now they're going to have so much money to just keep. Well, and that's kind of what I was getting at. They, they'll have the money to keep throwing around money the way they, they've grown accustomed to without okay. having to worry about failing, maybe. Where it's okay. like, OK, I could throw 100 million euros around on, on X player because now I have this guaranteed revenue stream where right now. Uh, and we've seen that guaranteed revenue stream get cut during COVID by, you said, 19% of a loss in fo- football overall, you know, mm. and if you're spending a lot of money and we saw it even in some of the other leagues, like in, in the NHL, for example, um, you know, I bring up the Islanders because we both like, both like them. And this summer they had a little bit of a cap issue because the owners and general managers were anticipating, I think, like a couple percent cap raise every year. 
uh, which would raise the cap three or $4 million. And, you know, if the cap was like 80 million us dollars, uh, the Islanders would have been just below that with the signings they need to make. Then all of a sudden COVID comes and they're like, well, the cap's going to stay flat this year. And then teams had to like shift and maneuver because they can't operate on these unlimited budgets of teams in Europe. Um, and even the one sport where teams were allowed to do that was major league baseball. And since, you know, I'd say probably close to a decade now there's, um, they have like a, 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 not a salary, a fixed salary cap, like many leagues, but a, uh, tax, uh, if you go mm. over like $200 million us in player salaries, you get taxed on it. And that money gets yeah. allocated to some of the smaller teams in the league. And that's kind of been their way of keeping teams like the Yankees in check and the Red Sox teams that have yeah. the money. Like they're the Juventuses and Milans of the world, you know, yeah, in as Italy. A, as a, as a Lakers fan, I know all about the, the yeah. salary tax. Yeah. yeah. It's often get paid. <laughs> so, yeah. So you have that luxury tax. They call it actually, they call it luxury tax yeah. because these teams have the luxury of spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on a player's salary. So, um, I, I guess if there was something more like that in Europe, which it's hard to do because you're operating within 50 countries in Europe or whatever it is, you know, uh, UEFA can't really put a fixed luxury tax or things like that because there's so many domestic leagues and players go from country to country, I guess. So it's, it's harder to, that, I guess, does, raise doesn't that now in. become possible with the super league because uh, with I the mean, super league, that, there is, yeah, yeah, that, that becomes a possibility. I don't know who would actually govern the owners, you know, like if Florentino Perez is the the leader of this super league right now, from what I've read and Agnelli and um, I forget who the other one was, they're like the vice presidents or vice yeah. chairman, like I who's making the rules do, you know, who's agreeing on the, the cutoff and things like that. They, so they would, they would need to get commissioner when they, yeah, you would think a few episodes. Yeah. yeah. But uh, okay. Well, we, we can get onto uh, American European sports much later, but let's go through the, the other main actors this week. There's, there's, I get Ada Hedberg's reaction this week. Uh, Ada Hedberg is the, the reigning Ballon d'Or uh, winner in uh, women's football. Probably some say that if not, if not the best player, certainly the greatest player right now in women's football. And uh, her reaction this week was really like, came off as like slightly bragging, but she has every right to. Where she said that you know th- she made the most of the opportunity that was given to her by football, rising up the ranks, uh, winning five titles, and uh, you know basically becoming awesome. And um, and players like her, like Herrera, Ozil on the men's side, and even former players like Gary Neville have, have all basically touched upon the same thing as Hegerberg, where they're stirring up this sense of romanticism in football, that's, that football is about meritocracy. But Steve, is it realistically a meritocracy as it stands right now? I guess from like a player perspective of, of making your way into the big time, there is some yeah. meritocracy there. I mean, you have to have God-given talents, of course. Um, but we've seen plenty of talents fizzle out well before they get to the senior level in, in many sports, um, you know, because of lack of, of, of work ethic or, or bad attitude, things like that. So I guess on a, on a player perspective, there is definitely meritocracy still in, in sport in general, including football. Um, I guess I could understand from a player perspective, but that, that to me sounds like players living in a bubble. And it's, it's like an example of how there's, there's in football right now, there's such a big disconnect between, uh, the player's journey and player's lifestyle, even as a trainee, when they don't have much money, mm-hmm. uh, living in that bubble where they, yeah. they rise up the ranks and they see it as a meritocracy, but realistic from the outside, how much public interest is there really at stake here when, when you see these, these players reacting like this? You know, like I'll, I'll give you some fuel for, for what you're saying right now, which is take Hegelberg's example, right? Um, imagine she's an Italian academy player before she rose up, rose up the ranks. We're talking about, um, we're talking about, 
a player who, if she's the role model right now, she's an example to around about 250,000 aspiring amateur women trainees that actually submit themselves to the FIGC academies uh, annually every year in Italy on the women's side. Um, and then of those 250,000, like a quarter of a million aspiring academy players, like you said, only like about 1% of those realistically make it to senior level, you know, after it's all said and done. So you're talking about like 0.4% of Italy's entire population can speak competing for such like so few spots, you know, how, mm-hmm. how seriously can football afford to take itself um, as sort of like a, a temperature reading of meritocracy and, and really like, you know, public interest, you know, is it not just the private entertainment circus having a feud among itself? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of meritocracy, it's meritocracy in kind of the bubble of football where you have to, you know, earn your way to the top of football, um, not as much in society, I guess you could say. Um, I mean, if you make it big, you obviously become like an elite citizen in terms of money and financial power and clout in some ways, um, which can then turn into even a political um, stance on things like we've seen LeBron James has used his his fame in basketball to even take stances on on social issues so I guess you can use your uh, I guess meritocracy that you've used through sport to uh, expand beyond sport but I think for the most part the merit is in that bubble of, of sport where you have earned your way to the top of your sport so yes I think you're right in that terms in terms of society as a whole you're looking at a very small percentage that you've earned your way past um, but even I like the way you you brought up the point of the the kids that come through the academy. They live a pretty uh, comfortable lifestyle now compared to back in the day when you had to earn your way um, through the, the ranks. I'd, I'd say working with like you know these local teams and things like that. If you're in the Roma Academy from the time you're eight nine years old, whatever age they start over there, you're getting yeah. private tutors. You're living in comfortable quarters. A lot of these bigger prospects, they'll make sure their families are set up. I remember when Fed, um, there was a Makeda. It was the uh, he was one from Lazio, but the, the kid uh, Petrucci from Roma went to Man United. They set up his mm-hmm. father with a job as a groundskeeper, things like that. So yeah, there's there's certainly some favoritism played. It's much different in Europe than being a kid growing up in Asia or Africa or some third world country that uh, yeah. has to work their tail off to even get noticed, to even get a chance at professional football. So even the meritocracy some, within the world of soccer is, is different than where you are. Sometimes they even win the lottery, even just by even arriving in the country. You have yeah. uh, Ibra Ibrahim Ibra, Ibra, Ibra right now, who's doing very well with Roman Primavera, but literally arrived on the raft to, mm-hmm. to, to, to become an academy trainee. So, yeah. yeah. Um, um, but then I want to bring the meritocracy to a, a bigger, more club level. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think you were going to talk about this with the fairy tale. So I'll let you ask the question first, and then I'll, I'll get into my answer because I think you're getting okay. to this. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah we're going to get back to the Atlanta thing. But First of all, as as like an everyday man, like as we are, um, you know, do you feel a disconnect with what the the ex players and players are saying right now in terms of like um, this is an assault on our traditions? Because I want you to like realistically look at your routine, right? Like we spend a, a lot of time dedicated to Chiesa, so we do spend a lot of time dedicated to football. But realistically, what does it change in our routine if the European Super League came to about? And and let's say for example. Football as we knew it right now just stopped existing. What, what would it change for you realistically? 
Um, it's one of my favorite pastimes, so I'd have some free time on my hands. <laughs> uh, but I, I have to say, when when sport really shut down about a year ago, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do with all my free time? Because, uh, you know, and I survived. My wife was like, see, you can survive without sports. I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> once sport came back, I was obsessive, not obsessively, but I was watching a lot of it again, especially because everything kind of came back at the same time. So I had like the NHL playoffs and, and Serie A coming back every three days. And uh, you know, even baseball was back. So, it, you know, I had a lot of fun watching when it was back on, you know, sport is my favorite pastime. Um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of is an escape from reality sometimes just to relax. And sometimes I take it a little too seriously, but in terms of my routine, if, if Roma was still playing in a Serie A without Juve, Milan and Inter, or if they were still in the champions league, I would still watch Roma obviously, cause we're Roma fans. We don't watch Roma to, you know, necessarily because Juve is in the league or Milan's in the league. It would take away a little bit of the excitement of playing those big teams though i'd say you know that now you're only really looking forward to a few matches a year in terms of like those head-to-heads i guess you're looking at like the lazio match obviously in the napoli but uh it does take away from the excitement around the league i think a bit okay fair enough fair enough well um you yourself steve you said uh we both said it actually that when when we uh when we were beating up on like the smaller mid-table teams at the league uh, there wasn't really much to brag about in terms of our routine on social media because you don't you don't spend your time going back and forth with Spezia or Spal fans and all that stuff. So uh, this is moving on to the question that you're anticipating and that I'm anticipating because you mentioned all this Atlanta stuff. How much do Roma fans genuinely care about the fairy tale stories of smaller clubs? Or is is this like um this sort of like you know, we've got to protect these values and protect this the Atlantis of the world? It, is this just pearl clutching as, as Bren called it on social media tonight? Because um, you know, do the Roma fans actually want Atlanta to succeed, or do they just look at Atlanta players as the next transfer target to Roma, for Roma to buy? You know, Steve, I've actually seen someone on the forum who, whenever Gasparini was linked with uh, becoming the next Roma coach, he would say, "Well, there's no way that uh, Gasparini would turn down Roma because Roma is a bigger club with more money, right?" And then today, I've seen that very same person. I'm not going to name them, but just they're just an example of the about face where they say well, clubs should never go along with the Super League because it's just about money. It's just about who has more money. And that's an affront to the values of football, you know, the, the whole meritocracy thing. So it's like that, you know, we'll use the Atlanta story when it's convenient for us, but then every other time of the year, we'll secretly hope that we can just poach their players and now we just go away. You know, how, how much do you really, really invest yourself in this fairy tale, like the fairy tales of Leicester City and Atlanta as well, fan? I enjoy it. I personally enjoy it. That's one of my favorite parts of sport is when the underdogs win out, um, not at the cost of my team, so to speak, um, because, you know, I, I root for teams that aren't known for winning all the time. You know, you we love Roma. Roma's yeah. not a winning club uh, in the grand scheme no. of things. They're, you know, they're a top five club in Italy for the most part over the course of our lifetime, probably, but yeah. they're not they're not a, at the level of Juve, Inter or Milan in our lifetime. So maybe they're fourth best. Um, since I think been... on, on, on average, since Serie A began in the 1930s, which I know is not relevant to now, but on average, they're the sixth place team overall. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to see who five and six are probably um, teams that we don't really think about in that in that yeah. picture nowadays. But, um, you know, outside of the Yankees, who I root for because I grew up in a, a Yankees family, um, the teams I root for aren't superpower teams, you know, the Islanders in hockey and and yeah, exactly. the, the, yeah. the Eagles in football. So I like seeing teams that aren't the favorites win uh, come March Madness. I love 
March Madness because you see these small schools that nobody's ever heard of come and upset like a Duke or a North Carolina who are like the powerhouses in college basketball. I, I think that adds so much fun to sport and it doesn't happen a lot nowadays in football because football is so top heavy in terms of finances and those teams just, you know, load up on players. Like we've seen, I mean, Manchester city, I think is up by like 20 points in the premier league right now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but look, is it mean, that much? It, it, it's pretty high. I don't remember last count, but I, I know okay. they've been running away with it, but look okay. at this year, you know, um, PSG is in a dogfight in, in league one, that, that, that league, there's like four teams within striking distance of each other. I mean, yeah. um, you know, Bayern tends to dominate Juve tends to dominate until recent years. And, you know, even though Atletico's now a super league club, I'd love to see Atletico upset Madrid or Barcelona just because they're Madrid and Barcelona as, as much of it's a minor upset. It's not a Leicester at Atalanta, but I enjoy it. When, when Leicester won the premier league, I was all about it, especially because Claudio Ranieri was the manager that actually, help pique yeah. my interest a little bit more and because i'm not a big premier league fan but um atalanta it, i root against them when it's at to, to the benefit of roma like in the league this year obviously i was like oh i hope you know atalanta loses some matches so we could finish fourth but now that that's out the window let Al- atalanta qualify for the champions league again because you know what forget these big clubs i'd rather be atalanta than lazio or, or napoli at this point or if it's at the expense of juve all the better um mm. because you know, it, it's good to see some parity. I know we'll never have the parity in football at this moment, the way you do in some of these American sports where there is a salary cap and there's a draft. Uh, it's a lot harder to, to structure that in European football because like I'd mentioned before, there's so many clubs around that you can't find a way to balance out every league, but you know, it's good yeah. to see a Leicester win. And look, Leicester's been relevant since they won. They're, they're in the top four race again this year. Um, you look at really? a lot of staying relevant. So Look at what they did with Claudio Ranieri after that success, though. Look at how everyone justified it. The season after he was fired, and what yeah. did people say? They, they rationalized it. People, like even even the, the most romantic fan rationalized it. They said, "Oh well, you don't get results. You yeah. gotta be out the window." Well, then yeah, <laughs> then you get the then you get the mentality of a big club when you're not a big club. Yeah. I guess yeah, exactly. it's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, um, I'll I'll admit that yeah, like yourself, I I don't know what it was consciously or unconsciously but as a kid and even as a young adult i was always attracted to the the underdog so yeah like you said you know i supported the islanders because i just love the fact that literally no one supports the islanders and, mm-hmm. and they were struggling for a home and yet still they've got and they've even got a history of john spano like you know yeah. the 80s and, and it's just all of that that chaos like i i love it i was attracted to roma for the same reasons newcastle united for the same reasons but also honestly I gave myself a break from that sometimes, um, that whole cycle of going through a season where you see a team predictably, predictably stutter at certain points and, and uh, you know, mentally stronger teams uh, take over. I gave myself a break from that in La Liga and in basketball because I, I wanted to become a Real Madrid fan and a, and a Lakers fan in both of those. And I, in, those, in, those, in that respect, I really enjoy that... Um, those two are sort of like they represent the aristocracy, like the establishment, mm-hmm. and like you know they're like we're taking these titles back because they belong to us. You yeah, know? like I, I I like a mix of both, but generally I'm more attracted to the underdog, um, given that moment of parity, like you said. You know, that's, yeah, that's sport for me. Yeah, and and even though it doesn't happen very often, like it's so rare because Leicester is really the only example I could think of in the last five years in these these top four or five leagues of a, of an underdog truly yeah. winning the league. But it just gives that glimmer of hope, you know, it's that little bit of hope. Or even when like a Sassuolo finishes 
sixth and goes to the Europa League, that's not a major achievement for a big club, but for mm-hmm. a smaller club to qualify for Europe the way Sassuolo did or Torino's done recently, and Torino's not as small as Sassuolo because they have more of a history, but yeah. there's still that glimmer of hope there, you know, for those clubs. And, you know, and us as Islander fans now, now that the Islanders are relevant again, it's so much sweeter now because we've taken years, we uh, take, years yeah. of, of, of berating. And when Roma yeah. upset Barcelona was one of the sweetest things, and not only because Roma upset a world power, but Barcelona, there's a lot of people I know that are Barcelona fans just because they're Barcelona, you know, like yeah. I grew up in a, a town where there's a lot of Latino immigrants and a lot of those South Americans either root for besides a club from their own country, whether it's Mexico or Peru or wherever it is, they root for one of the big Spanish teams because they have that connection yeah. through language and everything. And when Roma won it, it was so nice because, you know, you get to wear that Roma jersey proudly, you know, where yeah. other people could give a give a crap about Roma before yeah. that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I and agree. with I the Super League, there goes Roma's chance at doing something like that. <laughs> it's a valid point. It's a valid point for sure. Uh, we are we're going to look at the alternative to the Super League that UEFA have come up with this week, which really looks like Super League light in terms of the new Champions League proposals this week. But first, we're going to take a commercial break, and we'll be right back. All right, we're back, and we're looking at the new Champions League, Steve, that proposed uh, to begin from 2025 onwards. Uh, let's look at UEFA's actions this week. There, there, there are final protagonists this week that have been really been causing waves by how they've reacted to this whole Super League thing. Uh, first of all, before we before we look at the new Champions League, what about their threat to ban players and clubs from uh, FIFA and UEFA competitions, including the European Championships this summer? Uh, was this their only realistic course of action right now, or does it reveal their own sense of elitism? I mean, I think, you know, they are the big dogs. They are the the i can't say owners of european football but they are the i guess the overseers of of, you know european soccer yeah it's their realm um but this i think this power play move that they're trying to make really shows how nervous they are about the super league really coming to fruition um because what that's this is the biggest you know thing they can do to kind of dissuade players from wanting to have a super league or clubs from wanting to have a super league because financially they can't do anything because when you think about finances if the super league is going to come to fruition these clubs are going to make way more than uefa could ever promise them if they get the, yes. if they get the right television deal and they get this loan from jp morgan and they're playing they know they're going to sell out their stadiums every time they play each other because they know fans want to see these big matchups um and probably at very high ticket prices because they're all big names so financially uefa can't do anything but if they go and say, you know what, anybody who's playing for these teams can't play in the, in the Euros or next year in the World Cup, that would devastate some players. Um, because as much as money motivates these players, there are, are still plenty of players who I think have a lot of pride in representing their country. And the World Cup is still recognized as like the ultimate prize in football, you know, because it comes around every four years. And I think there's just like, there's still that romanticism around the world cup for many people that might not exist as much in club football, because even though the favorites tend to win, I, I think every, everybody wants their country to get behind them and everybody wants to be a hero in their country. I think uh, as, as a football player, cause that's kind of been the mentality that's been created through the years. But then Steve, how, how does, let's say that's true, right? I'll give you that. How does the world cup still represent everyone's aspiration to represent their country? if it's selectively given to you by UEFA just for participating in the tournament, right? How, how, could, how can UEFA wave the flag of, okay, we're, we're not just a closed bunch of entrepreneurs that are looking out for our own money, where, you know, we're the opposites of football, where we're looking out for what's right. How can they wave that flag this week? And then at the very same time, 
essentially act like slave owners by you know mm. by basically telling players look we'll we'll deny you the right to to make your own career choices if you work with the opposition yeah i mean that that's a great point and in uefa is it, are there no saints at all there are no saints mm. i think right now they're being seen as the lesser of two evil by a lot of a lot of fans um okay. because I don't think fans like the status quo in terms of like Juve dominating Serie A or Bayern dominating, you know, the, the Bundesliga, because that's not really good for anybody either. When one team dominates, we've seen in Serie A what it does to the league. Um, But I think when fans see the alternative of their league kind of being ripped apart when the big teams leave and who knows for fans of a club like us at Roma, what does that leave Roma with or the league with in general? I think, um, I think UEFA is just being seen as the lesser of two evils because we know, you, you know, we, we've seen the way UEFA has treated teams like Roma in terms of financial fair play versus a team like uh, a Man City or, yeah. or a PSG. So they're, they're no saints at all. Um, yeah. I just think they're being seen as that counterbalance to kind of get, hopefully not have this come to fruition in many people's eyes. Okay. Can, can they not just be the, the jilted lovers that are annoyed that Agnelli promised them something and then, and then backed out at the last minute? Because yeah. look at this new Champions League format. See, look at this new Champions League format, right? We'll, we'll explain it in, in the technical detail right now. But um, in case you don't want to listen to us explain it on the podcast, you could also save yourself time by looking at Tifo Football's uh, five-minute breakdown of what, what the format means. They call it the Swiss model of the Champions League and it's on uh, we posted on the Casey Totti but you can also go on YouTube and just go straight to the Chief of Football channel it's a really good video it only costs five minutes of your time and essentially what they're doing is they're not going to scrap they're not going to scrap the, the group stage there won't be any more group stage in Champions League you'll just be going straight to literally a league format where it will be 20 teams I believe no it will be 36 teams sorry um, so four more teams than were permitted now as we do 32 teams in the group stage now. That'll be expanded to 36. Um, and then every team will play each other, I believe, 10 times. They'll have 10 league games. I'm not quite clear on that. Um, sorry, 10 times home and away, I believe. Um, uh, but essentially what it means is that in the first round, you'll there'll be more games more participation, right, sorry, more money, more gate receipts between the bigger clubs because they'll be, they play with each other more often. You'll see them play each other at least twice in the first stage, if not more, because then later on, the first eight teams, I believe, of the league will automatically go through to the knockout stage, and then there'll be a playoff between the remaining uh, 16, if my math is correct. Yeah, I think the next 16 teams, and like eight are eliminated or something right off the bat. And then there's yeah. like a play play in to face those other eight teams, something to that okay. effect. So essentially you're getting the, you know, essentially what the Super League is proposing, which is you're getting the bigger teams facing each other more often. You know, it used to be a rare occasion to get a real big uh, clash in, in the Champions League. And, and if it happened, it was purely knockout format. It was literally like you got two, two ties, uh, two legs over a tie and you're done. Um, and you've got to make or break. But now it's a league where literally the big clubs are playing each other week in, week out on TV for us. So, Steve, is is this, you know, I can't be diplomatic about it. Is this just a pile of crap that, that you have to come up with? Because, uh, like we said, since the 1980s, since Berlusconi first proposed it, the Super League has always loomed in the shadow as the clubs wanting a new style of football where they can break away and determine their own future. And every step of that way, uh, UEFA has like managed to crowbar themselves in as the middleman Saying no, no, trust me. Champions League and the so European Cup is is where it's at. We'll just we'll just change the rules ever so slightly so that we can uh, accommodate you. 
and your and your and your needs. But it's gotten to a point where, you know, a Red Star Belgrade or, or a Stur Bucharest or Olympic Marseille uh, winning the Champions League just doesn't happen anymore. Or Porto. Mm-hmm. That was the last small team, quote unquote, that won the Champions League in 2004. Ever since then, it's been Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern, Bayern. Uh, Inter. You know, the Super League teams, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what what do we think about this new Champions League format? I think it's um, UEFA trying to give an alternative to kind of show the Super League teams that they're looking out for their interests while not completely losing their control of the game, I think. I think you're right in that sense. I think it's a way of appeasing these teams that are ready to leave for the Super League by saying, look, here, you guys can play each other more often. You'll make more money. You don't have to you know, lose your rights in your domestic leagues. You can still play your domestic football, but still get the benefit of more European games against big teams is what it seems like. And, you know, from a player perspective, you're not, you don't have the threat of not have being able to play international competitions and, and the such looming over your head. And you still get, you know, to play a lot of big teams from other countries, I guess would be the, the, the argument. Um, you know, I, I, the champions league already is a long ruling process for some of these teams. When you take into account the, domestic fixtures as well so i mean if you're talking as many games as they're talking these clubs are (laughs) i think they're gonna be run very ragged that that's that's one issue on the field i think i think everybody looks at it and especially the people in the ownership box and the on the boards and the chairman see money they see dollar signs euro signs uh pound signs whatever you want to whatever country they're in they're seeing those 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 signs in front of them you know and they don't, I think, understand the footballing aspect of it the way the coaches and general managers do. And I'm sure those kind of people weren't consulted in this process um, because on the pit, we've seen Roma this year, you know, in a second tier competition, like the, the Europa league where the competition in the group stage, at least wasn't very robust. Um, It becomes a lot on the players. And this year is a little more compressed than most years, but man, imagine trying to navigate a bigger group stage for like a Roma, say Roma finishes fourth and they qualify. You know, having the roster, then you're stuck in a, um, you know, a, a, a league setup where you're playing 10 games, say, and, you know, in that league with you is United, Barcelona, and Borussia <laughs> Dortmund, and then a couple lesser sides from other leagues. Man, suppose you have, you're playing almost every Wednesday through the fall, probably, to get to the group stage, and you have one Wednesday you're playing United, then Sunday you happen to draw Inter on the calendar, and then you're playing... <laughs> you know, Barcelona, Barcelona. and then next Sunday you got even, even like a Hellas Verona, a team that's not yeah. that easy to get by. And then the next week you have, you got Dortmund, you know, Dortmund. <laughs> and it's like, how do you build a roster for that without beating the crap out of your players? We've seen it already this year, how much it's taken a toll on Roma's, uh, Roma's roster. And then, and then the worst thing is for those teams that like, like are not the biggest dog, but they still have a chance to make it nearly all the way. So they mm-hmm. make it to the playoff stage. Then, then winter comes around, and there's eight teams that have like qualified can just take yeah. a break for the Champions League football, and and the, those mid-level teams have to still play on through the winter and get beaten up even more. Yeah, because if you know if you're one of these smaller teams and you qualify out of like you know the, the Czech Republic or something, right, and you're uh, Sparta Prague, say you qualify, we're, you win your league, you 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 can you know you'll take in those gate receipts for sure against those Uniteds of the world, but. Yeah. you know, if you have a chance to win your domestic league, you probably mail in a couple of those champions league games because you're yeah. never going to win it. But a Roma, yeah. like you said, might have a shot or uh, I don't know who else might get in there. Like Leicester city, who's not a big dog in England, but they are yeah. competitive. You know, yeah. what's the balance. Do you try to finish top four to get the guaranteed champions league again next year? 
or do you do you go for it? it out. Yeah. Oh yeah, go for it. Okay, yeah, go for it. Well, I also I should say we could wave goodbye to those teams from like you know uh, Sparta Prague or or uh, I don't know Lokomotiv Moscow like teams, but anyone from outside the big five leagues, uh, basically wave goodbye to their Champions League participation because the the real damaging aspect of this new UEFA proposal, the Champions League proposal, is that. Um, they're essentially going to be, in terms of qualification, becoming one of those 36 teams that makes it to the first league stage. Uh, there's essentially two wildcards in there where it's, it's been worded very um, uh, needlessly long in terms of like it's been worded in a way that makes it seem like it's based on sporting merit, but it's really on historical performance. So essentially, like if Manchester United finishes six in, in their league and instead of uh, like worrying about uh, a season in the Europa League, they're, you know, they, they look at the coefficient and their performance in Europe and they say, oh, well, guess what? You're invited to Champions League anyway. So yeah. you know, that's one less place given to someone somewhere in the Czech Republic, one more place given to the big five. Roma's, Roma's coefficient is pretty good, right? I mean, I think we're in the top like yep. 12. We're, top, <laughs> we're, we're, we're 14th place, right? I think we're like level with this. Spurs after uh, this past yeah. win against Ajax. Yeah. So we're, I guess from a Rome perspective, I guess we'll, we'll, it, we won't have to sweat through the domestic league as much. So we're happy being jumping on this boat and we're just going to kick <laughs> off the, you know, the, the, the Latvian farmers, as you say. Yeah. <laughs> All joking how, aside, how, though, it is, it is certainly UEFA's counter proposal to try to keep these big teams happy is all it comes down to. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're Juve or United or somebody and you have, or even Arsenal this year, take Arsenal. They have a good UEFA coefficient because they've done in the Europa League. You know, they've gotten far past few years. They're 10th right now in the Premier League. They're a Champions League team, according to this, this setup in a couple of years. Mm. forget mm. Roma in seventh you're talking about a 10th place team you know like yeah. Leeds United that's is ahead be, of them back in the Premier good. League they're ahead of them right now exactly you talk about elitism that, that's a yeah. blatant, blatant version of it right there uh, how do you feel if you're a fan from like Romania Russia or any any of these leagues are outside the big five do you with all this noise happening on Twitter and, and the news do you, do you actually care about it or is it just just noise and just business as usual I spoke to someone today based in Turkey he's a, a case of a forum member and he said that Fenerbahce and, and the Galatasaray fans are just treating it like business as usual, where they, they're really just worried, like the talk for them is they're worried about transfers. They're worried about signing Bruno Perez or the next, you know, the next guy outside the big five. So do you, do you, do you see anyone really being bothered about this? I think a couple clubs might be a bit bothered, like a Shakhtar Donetsk or, you know, Zenit St. Petersburg, some of these clubs that have managed to find their way out of the group stage um, and mm. into the knockout rounds fairly, cons- I don't want to say consistently, but, you know, a few times in the last decade, I think that has to to sting a bit because it depends, you know, now are you going to even be considered a Champions League team if you don't win your league and then there's wild cards taking spots. It has to be a bit hurtful. Um, mm. because some of these t- clubs have shown they belong playing with the big boys. I mean, we saw what Fonseca did when he was at Shakhtar, upsetting City and, and making themselves an, at least a nuisance of teams, you know? I mean, Zenit was pretty good under Spalletti. I know you're your you're favorite manager there, but, you know, he made them <laughs> fairly relevant. Um, it was good, but he yeah. was also criti- criticized for ignoring youth and uh, yeah. stacking the, the squad with, with experienced players, which we yeah. used to. Um, but you know, I think for some fan bases, it has to hurt a bit because some of these clubs that aren't in these big leagues can compete. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. All right. Well, for the rest of this episode, we're going to talk about um, things on a personal level, Steve. I'm going to I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about things as a perspective of someone who's grown up in Europe and what I envy about American sports. 
and then you're going to hit it back to me and talk about um, growing up in the US and what you envy about the history of European football. Uh, but first, I want to really, really quickly read out uh, a post from one of our forum members, Romanista Leo. It's a big post, so I'm going to I'm going to brush through it because we're we're pressed for time. But um, this is like a guy who really is. He's basically coined what I've envied about U.S. sports for a long time now, growing up as a European fan. And this is probably the, the closest I've seen to um, someone moving past the, the, the initial reaction of this whole Super League announcement and starting to analyze the pros and cons of each. Um, and he says, no option being presented is a merit-based option. It's uh, a money-agnostic system that we're talking about. Stalker is part of our disgusting capital capitalist nightmarish nightmare escape we live in and so getting overly upset that rich people are trying to make decisions that benefit themselves more than the already very beneficial to them status quo seems misplaced i also think the media is super biased because they know if there's only one league then half of them will lose their jobs and as only so many different articles can be written about a single league having many small leagues is important to their livelihoods it doesn't mean everything they say is false just that they're super biased. So pretending like the fact no media is supportive is significant, uh, is significant and silly to me. All this to say, I feel like everyone is so busy being upset that not much thought is being placed on how a European Super League might actually be fun to watch. My opinion on it is still mixed, but for different reasons than most posts I've seen here and online in general. I don't care about some effed up notion of merit people have discussed. Nothing is merit-based care about being entertained through soccer and Roma. I think the biggest mistake they make, they made was trying to have this replace the Champions League rather than entire European soccer structure. Having a 20-25 team league of teams from the biggest cities in Europe who play exclusively on weekends and who decide the winner in a playoff system at the end would be amazing. Having a revenue sharing system for this league, similar to the British Premier League, where the TV rights distrib distribution is decent, and not great, but not CDR levels of effed up, would help ensure competition on par with what is seen today in the EPL and Champions League. Not great, but again, way better than a decade of the same one, two teams in three different effing national leagues winning their respective leagues. As for growing players, either have a Super League B with the next round of the 2025 uh, size city teams or have each team have an under 21 league, which each team uses to develop talent doesn't matter just have a farm league whichever people think would get the most eyeballs my main concerns i have are around a post i saw in a prior thread around turning payment to the payment to watch the league into a pay-per-view wwe slash boxing style uh, he said that's a valid concern um but all this to say replacing the current system through a complete overhaul centered around a single european league is an idea worth way more support and discussion than the blanket hate is getting now steve i read that to you because i think he put into words for me better than what I could say as a, someone who grew up watching football become something that's just not when I was a kid and often looking towards the other side of the pond and seeing you know like uh, I'll give you an example you know the Lakers um, you know they had the whole like they were on for the three-peat uh, I can't remember if they did it or not but it was like Kobe's last years in his prime and then they had to have an overhaul of that dynasty um, where you know they signed Dwight Howard it didn't work out, you know, he's, and like, but luckily because you're in a closed league system, you're not stuck with Dwight Howard. You can actually, you know, tell the players like you have salary cap, you have all of that. So you can actually tell the players, look, you're not performing. It's not working out. You've got to go. And you could do it overall. And, and it, no matter how long it takes, 
you wait and wait and wait until the next, you know, dynasty player comes around, which is in this case a very uh, old LeBron James, but who, uh, LeBron James who still has it you know, to, if you convert to point guard, and you can actually do that. Whereas me, honestly, as a European fan of football, I'm really I'm I'm over this whole thing of players um, having the right to just sit around clubs and uh, basically put in the kind of performances that we've seen this weekend against Roman Torino. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that players owe me anything whatsoever. You know, like if they, if they, if for, I'm sure that players want to perform well, but for some reason, sometimes they just can't get it going. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm over that being excused and bit, and that frustration being thrown at the coach because the coach is the least paid guy at the club. So it's the easiest thing to blame him and, and send him out packing. You know, I'm envious of American sports like, that that player power has been limited in that way. Well, how do you feel growing up in, in the U.S.? I mean, I, th- I still think coaches are one of the biggest scapegoats. Players obviously get, get criticized, too, for poor performances and poor seasons and things like that. Um, but coaches, I think, are always at the front of the firing squad um, because they're the leader of the team and they put the team on the field. And um, sometimes, rightly so, they're criticized, sometimes not you know, it's not just that the coach is criticized. And I think a lot of that, I think we agree in the Fonseca case this year has been on Fonseca. That isn't always his fault. Um, But I do agree from an American perspective of someone who watches uh, sports that have a hard salary cap, like the NHL and the NFL. um, And even I'm not a big NBA fan, but they have the heart. They have a salary cap as well versus a, a, even a major league baseball, which has like a softer salary cap with the luxury tax where you're not restricted to how much you can spend. But if you do spend over it, you're going to pay a penalty for it um, mm. because you clearly have the money to, to pay, you know, to help the league out. And I, I think that is why we see so much more parity in American sports. You know, I'm a Yankees fan growing up. Uh, the Yankees won four out of five world series in the mid to late nineties into the two thousands. Um, they, they haven't won since 2009, haven't been to the world series since 2009, which is like unheard of in Yankees history because of these, uh, kind of checks and balances, which have been put in place a bit. And the Yankees have still spent plenty of money. Don't get me wrong. They've spent plenty to try to win a world series, but it shows that other teams can compete with them. Um, Mm. you know, some of them, other big spenders like the Dodgers and Red Sox, which have won, but we've seen teams like Tampa, the Tampa Rays who are like, um, if, if there was a relegation system, you know, in American baseball, they would have been down the minor leagues a long time yeah. ago. And then all of a sudden they built a team that can compete. And now they're a direct competitor of the Yankees and Red Sox in the AL East and made the world series last year. Um, same thing in hockey, as bad as the Islanders were managed, like we mentioned earlier, and as bad as they were run, they got a competent general manager and coach in place now, and they can compete with the best. Uh, they made the yeah. Eastern conference finals last year. So I think, Uh, That is one thing I do love about American sports, uh, being a fan of many American teams, because sports are more widely followed here from, you know, league to league. We have more options here in the States than in Europe, I'd say, in terms of big leagues uh, Mm -hmm. for different sports, is that you can be a fan of multiple teams and always have that hope that the next year will be better if you have the right people in place at the top to guide you, um, because you're, you're on a more level playing field. You're not on the exact same level playing field. We've seen plenty of dynasties, Um, But dynasties have become more rare. We don't see any of those Yankee dynasties of the 2000s or even the Lakers of the Kobe Shaq era, so to speak, or um, even when the Miami Miami Heat built that super team with LeBron and Wade and Bosh, they didn't win every year. There was competition that could upend them and and beat them um, in the finals. Um, So it is, I think, after watching Roma now for a decade and a half and seeing how difficult it is to win if you're not one of the big three teams, since I've been a fan of Roma, 
nobody has won Serie A besides the Milan clubs and Juventus. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in American sports, I'm sure in the last 15 years, every sport that I watch, besides maybe the NFL, because the Patriots have been, and that's the closest thing to a dynasty, I guess, in, in American sports, because they've been run so well, but they've done it within the constraints of the salary cap. Um, yeah. All the other sports, there's got to be close to double digit teams winning titles in those 15 years um, mm-hmm. because there's more of uh, the checks and balances and the parity. And the parity has been, been very good for American sports because it keeps more fan bases interested over the long term um, in that I'll, regard, you, I think. I'll give you another, another two fairy tale stories that are directly comparable when you tell me which one is more, like, more emotive for you from your side. Uh, there's Sassuolo, who didn't exist as a club until recently, and people said they were plastic. There's, you know, they were basically the the, the love child of uh, the owner of Mape. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, they they'd been born into an area that was already overly represented because they had uh, um, Emilia Romagna has like Parma, Bologna, uh, Reg- yeah, Bologna, Regina, Regina, or something. Yeah, so they have a lot of clubs, and then Sassuolo was just one more club added to the mix. So you know, you said that Sassuolo making it to Europa League was a fairy tale story, but then. What about the Nashville Tigers in ice hockey, where you know they, they didn't exist like until 20 years ago? Or so and then now they, they actually won. If I'm not mistaken, they won the Stanley Cup recently. The Predators. Sorry, Predators. Sorry. Uh they lost to the the, the Penguins a couple of years ago. I think they were like uh, within oh, a couple games. To, okay, but they had they had an amazing team where they had like yeah. just like four checking all over the all over mm-hmm. the, the rink and uh, and you know it was just, it was like a really impressive team to watch. They made it to sorry they made it to the finals. They didn't actually win. Yeah. So which one is like which one is more impressive to watch for you? I, I mean, as a fan, I, the American model where you can make that Cinderella run in a playoff situation is is I think more the the emotions when your team is in a playoff series. Um, and you have a chance at like the last, last summer with the Islanders into the fall, going into the Eastern conference finals was one of the most exciting things. I mean, I've been to playoff hockey games, not last year, unfortunately, because of COVID, but those are some of the most fun sporting events you can go to. I've never been yeah. to a world cup match or a champions league final or anything like that. Um, uh, but just the emotion at like a playoff game is, is, is awesome in American sports. And that is one thing that European sport misses. Uh, I know that in the cups mimic that a little bit, but not to the same level, um, because Juventus, you know, in an American style system like MLS has, or even if it wasn't as wide as like half the league making the playoffs, which MLS has, I think it's pretty close to half the league. You know, even if the top eight in Italy made a playoff, you know, two two legged playoff, Ju- Juve would have their hands full in in the, the playoff round. You know, yeah. like what they do in in hockey. Um, you know, the the team with the best record gets recognized for having the best record through the through the year but they're not considered the champions nobody you know thinks about the um the president's cup trophy yeah like they do the stanley cup everybody cares about the stanley cup because the stanley cup playoffs in themselves are a grind and almost a season in themselves to to make the final like those guys go through hell to win the stanley cup you know uh and some of them grow beards the whole playoffs and you just see how long the beard (laughs) becomes by the end of the playoffs it's one of the most awesome things um but that 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 adds that extra dynamic to American sports that European football misses um, yeah. outside of like the Champions League where you have a knockout stage and you can get those upsets yeah, like Roma Barcelona because when over the course of 38 matches in, in football or 82 in basketball or 82 in in hockey or 162 in baseball the the cream usually rises to the top if you're looking at yeah. best record overall because over a long haul the best team is going to win the most games. Team with the most when resources. You, yeah. Well, yeah, with the most resources, the best roster, the better players. Yeah. Uh, but when you bring it down to like 
do or die situation five five games or seven games yeah Yeah. um sometimes you the best team will sweep four games like we see in the nba a lot of time in the first round especially the one eight matchups but you get those matchups in the playoffs sometimes and it becomes a lot of fun because when the big boys are on the ropes it everybody gets behind the underdogs unless you're a fan of the big boys yeah in terms of individual sport that's why i love tennis more than Mm -hmm. i love any other sport because it's like that you don't have to win the most points in in a match to even win the match itself you just have to be um at the right place uh at the right time for the biggest points and that can mentally affect your opponent so much and they'll be on the ropes like you said um in terms of knockout football yeah that's that's the equivalent we have over here um the one that uh, the one knockout match that left the most impression on me even though i wasn't i didn't see that match in person but we went to uh, I, was, I was a student at the time we were in college and I went to go see the 2006 Champions League final between Arsenal and Barcelona um, with like at the bar the students bar where it was all stacked with Arsenal fans right and uh, I had never supported Arsenal in my life up until that moment like that was like really my first uh, moment where I just decided to become an Arsenal plastic for the day and uh, yeah, as an Arsenal uh, renter fan for the day and uh, so was um, my close friend who, like, she was, she wasn't into football whatsoever, but she just had nothing bad to do for the day. It was like, it was summer holiday. Summer holidays were beginning, sorry. It was end of, uh, beginning of May, end of, end of the year. And she just needed to wind down. So we went to, to, that, to that match with her and her boyfriend and myself. And um, we, we just got swept up in the atmosphere of that match because the way that it happened, it was uh, um, Arsenal took the lead 1-0. And then they got a man sent off and they were facing Barcelona who were, who were the favourites already, but then obviously Arsenal 10 men, they were, Barcelona were even more the favourites. So it became like a, a like 70 minute match of could Arsenal hold out on a 1-0 lead. And they, they couldn't in the end, Barcelona won at the death 2-1, but it was just like, that was what, you know, that's what knockout football is all about. It's like, mm-hmm. it just comes down to those events on the day itself, you know? And uh, yeah, I wish we had more of that in, in football. I, I, if I'd welcome a player format, like, like you're saying, at the end of every league. Yeah, uh, similar to what the, the Primavera level has in, in Italy, exactly. where you get that playoff. Um, you know, and, and MLS does the same thing here in the, in the United States because, you know, that's a newer soccer league. And in the United States, I don't think a promotion relegation system will go over well with the majority of fans because we're so used to the playoff format. So what um, MLS does, they award the supporter shield, which is like the Scudetto in Italy, where the best team of the season gets the supporter shield. And then there's yeah. an MLS Cup playoff at the end. Okay. So they kind of try to f- have the best of both worlds. I what think about, in that sense. Uh, I'll, uh, I've got two more questions for you. I'll ask you, I guess I'll ask you the, this first one first, because uh, this is in Bren's own words, where he said, um, it's going to be purely American perspective, so I'm just going to be listening to you. Um, he said the NFL is the like, sort of like the best version of uh, socialism in sports today, and that's it's unhappy, it's unpopular to call that in America because people don't like the word socialist. So is is that accurate to say that? I think so. In in that regard, um, in that microcosm, I th- I think so because I was even thinking when you were answering about knockout sports, how the NFL is the ultimate knockout sport in the playoffs because it's one one and done. It's not like hockey or baseball where it's seven game series where the yes, better yeah, team yeah. usually will will win out in a seven game series. It's one and done. Um, the NFL's even expanded now the playoff system to include three wild cards where uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with uh, the American sports, there's usually divisions where teams are broken into divisions. So the NFL has um, that NFC and the AFC. So it's split in half. Uh, there's four divisions in each one, the top four 
you know, the winners of each division go to the playoffs. And then there's three wild cards from each league. So now it's a, a 14 team playoff, seven on each side. And the better teams are rewarded with a buy in the first round to kind of give them some advantage. But with uh, the parity that the NFL has, has had in the, in recent years, we've seen teams that go nine and seven in a 16 game season, play a team that's 13 and three in the playoffs. And because it's that one game uh, and they say in the NFL on any given Sunday, you know, that, that, le- that lesser team can win um, yeah. because it's one game. Uh, and, I, love, and- I love that. I love that film, by the way. Yeah. And when you look at the NFL, even outside of the playoffs, the fact that there's a salary cap, you know, uh, and yeah. there's a draft and the way the draft work is the worst teams pick first to get the best college prospects. And I know that it's not something that could really be done in football because there's not really a college system like there is in the United States in terms of sport. But, you know, that number one quarterback, Trevor Lawrence from Clemson University, who's been the best college quarterback for the past couple of seasons now, he's going to go to number one to the Jacksonville Jaguars who have been awful for the past couple of seasons. So it gives that fan base that, that hope that we have the best quarterback from college coming who can become a star in the, in the NFL. Um, And then the team like this year, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who won the Super Bowl with Tom Brady will pick last. They'll pick 32nd in the draft and it'll go for seven rounds. And that's how teams replenish themselves. There's free agency where you don't have to pay a transfer fee to get a player. It's, you know, everybody's limited to, I don't know what the salary cap is right now. I'll just say a hundred million just to give it a round number. But yeah. if, if you're close to the hundred million, you can't go out and sign a player with a big contract. Who's a star, even if you need them, because there's a limit to how much you can spend. And that limits a team like the Dallas Cowboys who have a big, you know, stadium, a lot of fans bringing a lot of revenue from just dominating the league. Like they used to back in the nineties. Um, and other teams have a shot that don't have a big, a big, you know, revenue base. I mean, you look at the Green Bay Packers. They're one of the most successful franchises in the NFL. Yeah. Green Bay, nobody would know where Green Bay is if it wasn't for the Packers. <laughs> you know, like it, yeah. it's, it's this tiny town from all accounts that I've heard. It's not a city, um, you know, but everybody knows Green Bay. Even on, around the world, people know Green Bay, Wisconsin because of the Packers yeah. if they ever watch a football game. Yeah. Uh, so I guess in that sense, uh, socialism in a way, uh, is a very political word, but when you look at it from a, an economic standpoint and the way the league is run, it is a very yeah. socialist league because the NFL has done their due diligence to purposely create this parity to mm. keep all 32 fan bases invested in their team and always give them that hope that it could be their their team's year. Um, mm. And you know, every team will have their down years now. Even the Cowboys haven't been dominant in like they have in the past. The 49ers, even the Packers, have had some down years, um, but fans keep coming back because they know yeah. that after a couple of good drafts, good general manager making the right trades or the right signings, their yeah. team has a you chance a to shot. win the Super Bowl, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and not many European clubs can, can claim that. Yeah, I, I envy that. I, I, I ask myself, why can't we introduce the element of chance more into football over here? Because I, I look at it over there and I'm just thinking, you know, I, like, like people have said, I'm tired of buying winning, you know, nine in a row, Juve and mm-hmm. that stuff, you know? It's just, it's, it's, it's over for me. But, and after um, having this conversation, now that I'm putting this in perspective, because as an American fan, I'm kind of spoiled that I have multiple teams to root for. Mm-hmm. If I was only rooting for Roma every every year, I, I guess I would be a lot more downtrodden as a fan because I'm I'm a, I'm still an optimistic fan at this point in my life. In some ways, at 34 years old, you know, I'm yeah. less optimistic than I was at 24 <laughs> um, when I first started following Roma because back then they at least were you know gunning for Coppa Italia's and things. But you know, it 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 starts to to wear on you when your team you know, keeps losing or yeah. even in Roma's case, not, they're not a losing team, but just not be able to even have a shot at winning a trophy. We've seen Roma have 80 something point seasons and, and still miss out on the Scudetto. Yeah. 
It's, it's when you can see like you've seen the story before happen before yeah. you're seeing it play out before your eyes yet again and you know that, that makes you feel like oh my god i'm getting old because i can actually see it coming this time you know where in um, the last decade the teams were almost put together i'm sure in an american style playoff system they could have won a playoff yeah, yeah. once or yeah. twice all right well we're, i mean we've done we've done a good job of like building up the the unlikely uh element of uh popular representation that you can get from a closed league system in the u.s but what about uh flipping it around to um the other side we, we don't have much time here but i'll just i'll end it on this steve is, is there anything that you look towards european sports like maybe, oh, sorry association football where there's a you know the, the multi-league system where all clubs from amateur to semi-amateur to professional are tied in together and that their destiny is sort of tied together uh, is there anything you look towards like maybe the history of that and you and you envy it from the american side because i i I will say that um, we got very lucky in Europe in the 20th century. And I wasn't, I wasn't alive when anything things happened, but I can look back and, and appreciate how lucky we got uh, if we're talking about the element of chance. Because, um, you know, around the early 20th century or so, um, I read about, like, sort of like, just as an example, I read about the explanation of how, how Nazism came about. And it actually started with... Um, you know, young men being moved out of villages, you know, in, industrialization, industrialization hit, sorry. And uh, suddenly, you know, young men moved to major cities and had to worry about nine to five life. And so you see as yourself, you, know, you see yourself as like a young 24 year old and you see like, you know, your mom, your dad have promised yourself your, your life will be, you know, so structured and orderly. And you, you'd wake up one morning and they'd pick a wife for you and you, you know, you married, you get happily ever after. Suddenly all that's gone out the window because you moved to a big city and you're looking at all the other 24 year old men around you and everyone's the same so it's not you know you're not like the little prince on the throne anymore you're just a worker and you know what they explained uh, i read an explanation about this that people turned towards um that nostalgic that sentimental value of the village mentality to to really start like uh blaming uh, foreigners for you know why mm. they felt a sense of alienation in big city life right and we got lucky because a lot of people a lot more people could have turned towards like could have you know turned far right but they didn't because we had football professionalizing itself as a sport. So you had a, you had you know open gates, amateur clubs, professional clubs all around the continent opening their gates to taking young men and saying, "Look, we're going to train you. We got we give you a place to to stay. We'll give you a place to train. We'll give you we'll build you up as athletes. And if you really make it, you know, make a good run of it, you could get you know some trophies, get a good salary out of it. You know, um, in that sense." Football in the 20th century, association football in Europe, is an incredibly lucky event. And I understand why people who have grown up with that story of being told that that's what football is about would feel betrayed today. You know, I, I wouldn't want to wave goodbye to that sentiment, but I don't know if there's really room for that romance today in terms of, I don't really know if football is that real, like, savior of, of society today. But how, how do you see it from the American side? Yeah, I mean, there there is definitely that romanticism with the European game. I think it's it's cool how a lot of these teams started as actual clubs. Like you see Genoa, the Genoa Cricket and Football Club, the oldest club now in, in Italy, founded by English sailors. And it was started as a club for Englishmen who were there, uh, you know, at the docks and stuff. And uh, a lot of these, they're called clubs because they literally started as like social clubs, like athletic clubs. Um, so I think that aspect is really cool because it started as the common man. I even watched, it was on Netflix about a year or so ago. I think it was called the English game or something. And it was about the FA cup back in the 1800s and how there were those kind of social elites who had a, had their own team and it was all an amateur game. And 
you know, they kind of wanted to exclude certain teams because they wanted to continue to dominate, but it was, it was, it was the common man's game where there were factory teams, basically the, the mm-hmm. workers of factories had yep. to work at that factory to represent the team. And then it kind of got into how professionalism started with, with players switching teams and stuff. But it, it's really cool how that, that's how it all got started, you know, as, as like almost like a Sunday league for the factory workers to have some kind of something to look forward to. Um, mm-hmm. So they didn't want to rebel against their, their <laughs> bosses who worked them to half to death, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> in some of those, uh, you know, horrible conditions that we saw in the States and in Europe. In, when industrialism or, or, rose or but. You, just, you just daydream about your boss joining the team so you could slide tackle them on the yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so in that sense i think the origins of european football are cool and um we see how in europe versus the united states how it, it football became a political exercise as well with the ultra groups uh whereas mm-hmm. we don't really see that in the united states i know the united states is looked at as like this wild crazy country we see plenty of stuff in the news that people think americans are like nuts but you never see like massive fights at like an American sporting event. You might get like a, a couple drunk guys going at it. I've seen, you know, a, a, an Islanders fan and a Ranger fan go at it drunk in the parking lot and things like that. But yeah. nothing to the extent that you see in, in Europe and in South America where politics is so heavily linked to sport. Yeah. Whereas I think in, in the United States, sport is much more of a, an entertainment, uh, an escape from your nine to five, something to look forward to that gets your, your blood flowing a little bit. Um, you know, some people get mouths on him and get into fights, like I said, but you know, it's not like so organized in that sense, in terms of like, we're going to, you know, the, the Arsenal fans and the Tottenham fans are going to meet up in an alley somewhere in, in yeah. Lond- North London and, and go at it maybe, like maybe, it used to be, you know, win. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in that sense, it's very different. Um, I, I, I don't know if the franchises now in the U S would be less connected to their fans than European teams. Cause I don't see the European teams being so connected to their fans, like you mentioned earlier. So I think in that regard, European clubs used to be much more connected to their fan bases. Yeah. Uh, not so, as much anymore. So um, even from your perspective, it's, it's not that relevant today. There's a whole romance story. I, I don't think as much. I think there's always that romance with a club. I think it's always, I, I'm a, uh, someone who loves history. So I think the romance and history of clubs is important and sports in general is important. Um, okay. But it's less important, I think, than it used to be because of, you know, the way sport has become a business now. Um, we can't deny that. Um, but at, going back to your question about, you know, American teams, there's no playoff, rele- you know, the relegation system. You play the same teams over and over. It doesn't really get old, I think, because the faces change. Um, you, you always have those teams you despise. Like I've always despised the Cowboys, even before I was an Eagles fan. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the Red Sox, I, I always look forward to the Yankees Red Sox a little less now because the Red Sox haven't been as relevant the past couple of years. But when, you know, the Yankees and Red Sox were duking it out in the American league, there was no, nothing more exciting in baseball to watch, you know, um, it, on the level of Roma Lazio, you just play mm-hmm. more often. Um, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll bring this year's hockey season in perspective. So because of COVID, the NHL wanted to limit travel. So, um, they split up the teams into four divisions where they're mm. limited, ge- you know, by geography. And the Islanders yeah. are in a division with the Rangers, Devils, who are in New Jersey, um, a couple other teams like the Penguins, the Flyers, um, the Bruins. And these are teams that the Islanders have, have most of them have had rivalries with in the past. So yeah. to me, now they play all these teams eight times each and it's a 56 game schedule. It's, it's been intense. Um, mm. You know, I, I do miss playing some of the West coast teams and the Canadian teams a little bit, but I think for one season, it's a lot of fun because you play the Rangers eight times. The most you ever play them is usually four times, you know, and, yeah. and I always get up for Islanders Rangers because I have Ranger fan friends or, you know, I can't stand, <laughs> you know, when you play these, these rivals, it's like, imagine Roba playing Lazio 
you know, say it was a, a, a 38 game season and they had limited travel to just like Southern Italy and Rome was playing Lazio and Napoli like six times each. Like, yeah. I don't care how many times you play Lazio, you get up for Lazio every time. <laughs> so, Which did, did happen in uh, one solitary year of, I think it was 1942, where uh, the World War was looming like large and um, they had to, they had to break up City and, and they, they, uh, made a local tournament in the, in the city of Rome where it was like six teams and they just played each other the whole year. So, yeah, yeah, yeah which is pretty cool. And yeah. I think the one thing that's cool about European football is the promotion relegation system um, because you get to see different teams every year. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, those teams rarely compete. A lot of the time they get relegated the same year. This might this year, we might actually see two of those newly promoted teams survive Serie A for another season. Yeah. A lot of the time, though, because you're lucky if you get one of them surviving. Yeah, um because Palmer and Caddy have been so bad so, yeah, yeah because they've been so bad but yeah. you know and and the promotion relegation system the what that hurts versus the American perspective is those teams aren't guaranteed to be in the league next year so they don't have that guaranteed revenue so they have to operate in a way that is very cautious whereas yep. the Detroit Lions might not make the NFL NFL playoffs for 10 years but they know they're going to be in the NFL with an NFL budget and revenue stream every year to yeah. operate with so there's, for example, there's that if, that you know balance yeah, and and like I said, if, for example, if uh, a smaller team makes a commitment to someone like say, let's say uh, the equivalent of Pedro, who's been a bad signing for mm -hmm. Roma, as it turns out, uh, they have to stick with that player yep. through thick and because they just can't they can't tell them you know just this isn't working out just you know just go you know it's, it's just it can't be done so it's in that sense there's there's more the better power but there's more of a chance of a, a millstone hanging around the club's neck for yeah. a few years you know. And these American teams can cut players, but they still will have a cap penalty. Um, but not like, you know, not the same way these European clubs, like we have to hang on to Juan Jesus. If this was an American team run team yeah. in an American league, even with a salary cap, you know, if Juan Jesus was making three, three and a half million euros or whatever, Roma would have like a deadline. Okay. If you release this player by say like, um, maybe like July 1st, you only, mm -hmm. only half the salary would count toward your salary cap it gives you a little more flexibility to, to get rid of some of the dead weight where we don't have to see yeah. Tiago Pinto or Petrarchi or Monchi or anybody else before them, Sabatini having to find these creative deals to just get the guy yeah. off the books and find him, yeah. him the motivation to go to Genoa or something, you know, yeah. because in the NFL or NHL or any of these American leagues going to another team, isn't necessarily a death wish on your career. Like it is maybe going to a mid to lower level team in one of these European leagues, because it might be less desirable to go to some destinations in, in these U S leagues because the team hasn't been good for a few years, but it's not going to affect your salary. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's not going to affect your appeal from a marketing perspective as much as maybe go in, in a European league. Um, mm -hmm. And you know that maybe you bide your time for a year or two, and then you could get them to trade you or something like that. So yep. yeah, that that's another perspective of the European yeah. system. Well, we've gone through several pros and cons, but uh, we're way over time and uh, we're going to try and keep it within a, 90 minute time limit here um we'll briefly talk about what what's coming up next this week i mean honestly it's most likely to be more reaction to the super league because it's it's such a, a titanic event that it really affects all possible outcomes for example the UEFA exec has come out today and reportedly said he expects friday to be the day friday of this week to be the day that UEFA really slammed the gavel down on the champions league and el so europa league participants who, who have joined up to these 12 pack of 12 clubs that are breaking away. Um, they've, the, the exec expects UEFA to come and say that those clubs are out of European competition for the rest of the season. So that could mean a possible Roma versus Villarreal Europa League final. 
And then we're back to talking about whether Paulo Fonseca is the best manager Roma have ever seen in decades <laughs> because he'll be the first man to to guide us to Europa League final. And and then and then what happens to the Champions League? There'll only be uh, PSG left in it because the other three will be thrown out. So yeah, my my question too is: Do they bring yeah. back the teams eliminated by United and Arsenal? Mm-hmm. Do they bring back Zagreb and the Spanish club that United? eliminated or in the champions league does Bayern get a reprieve but Bayern lost mm-hmm. to PSG or some of these other teams that Chelsea beat and so on so on so yeah because the they want to no. give up the the games and the tv time from those games yeah truth is no, nobody knows right now only, yeah. only people only heated arguments in, in the UEFA offices know right now uh, so all that to say that uh, what's coming up this week from chiesaditotti.com is most likely going to be more super league stuff uh, just to follow up on what Roma's immediate destiny is and then, of course, on Sunday, don't forget, 25th of April, Roma uh, traveled to Juventus. The women's team traveled to Juventus for that second leg of the Coppa semifinal. We'll be covering that pretty in-depth because it's, it's a giant fixture for this season. Um, and that's it for now. You can catch us uh, where you normally catch us, and we'll be back soon. Bye for now.